Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hey, spectacular people. This is the ghost that lives in Stephen Pappas' house. When I'm not causing general chaos or harassing the dog, who they also decided to name Ghost, I'm listening to the History Ghost Bump podcast. That wouldn't be possible without executive producers like so many of you. Every episode is entirely listener-supported, so if you'd like to support the show, check out the Support the Show tab at historygoesbump.com. I think this is the part where I'm required to say boo. Boo. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 186 episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. Today, we are featuring another one of our life and afterlifes of a certain celebrity or star out there. Today, we have Patsy Cline. We are both huge fans of her music. We both like country. And Patsy Denise was very unique in the music world because she really was one of the first crossover artists to go from country to pop and back and forth. Yes, she was. And that was way before that was a popular thing to do. This all came about because an author named Matt Swain, who's written several books, America's Haunted Universities, Haunted Rock and Roll. And now his most recent book is called Ghosts of Country Music, Tales of Haunted Honky Tonks and Legendary Specters. He contacted me and said, hey, would you be interested in having me on your show. And as you guys know, we like to focus on just one thing. And then I went, well, let's talk about who's a ghost out there that is a country star. And the minute I knew that Patsy Cline was haunting some places in the afterlife, I said, that's what I want to do. So Matt Swain will be joining us in just a moment. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Jessica. Hey, Jessica. Joe. Hello, Joe. Steven. Hi, Steven. Wendy. Hey, Wendy. Alan. Hello, Alan. Patrick. Hey, Patrick. And Julie. Hey, Julie. So we are joined by Matt Swain. He's a journalist. He currently is working as a research writer at Penn State. Matt has worked as a reporter and as a music reviewer for several newspapers and online outlets, such as centerdaily.com and music.com. He's also been a regular contributor to the recently revitalized version of Omni Magazine called Omni Reboot. He writes the Anti-Matter column, interesting, which looks at fringe science and the paranormal for the online magazine. He's also worked on writing projects with Paranormal State's Elfie Music, balancing skepticism with an open mind. Matt uses his experience in journalism and interest in both ghost lore and the paranormal to collect and tell stories about the supernatural. And that's perfect because we're open-minded skeptics here. How are you, Matt? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me on the show. Well, I'm very excited to talk to you. When you contacted me and let me know that you are the author of three books, America's Haunted Universities, Haunted Rock and Roll, and Ghosts of Country Music, I was like, oh, wow, this guy is touching on some stuff that is very, very interesting. 
Well, likewise, when I was listening to your show, I, I thought, boy, I'd really like to be on this show. Oh, great. The thing that we love to ask people when they come on, whatever genre or outlet they happen to be coming from, whether it's another podcast or writing, is obviously if you're into ghosts, there has to be a reason why. So what got you interested in the paranormal? Well, I have a really long story about that. Uh, I was born on Halloween, so this has been kind of a lifelong adventure, not one that I had ever foreseen that I would take. As a Halloween baby, you either embrace it or you don't tell anyone about it, and <laughs> I embraced it. And throughout my life, I've been very interested in, in the kind of Fordian, the occult, horror movies, sci-fi, those types of things. And actually, how I got writing about it was I was working uh, as a reporter at a, at a daily newspaper in my hometown of Tyrone, Pennsylvania. Every Halloween, you know, I would try to have that I'm a Halloween baby, so I'd want to have a good Halloween feature story. And one time I decided I would uh, do a story on some of the ghost lore and the ghost stories around my hometown. You know, as I looked into it, I got into collecting some of these stories that I would consider ghost lore, which is folklore based on on ghosts and spirits. But I really became interested in university ghost stories, and I started to write uh, every time that I could find a story about a ghost story at, a, at either a nearby university like Penn State or someplace across the country, I would collect those. And I'm kind of a info pack rat. So that's <laughs> really how I got writing about it. And uh, again, it was something that I didn't wake up one morning and say, I really want to write you know, about ghosts. It was just sort of a natural thing for me and an extension of this natural interest I had. Well, I'm jealous because Halloween's my favorite holiday. So if my birthday was on <laughs> it, I'd be like, yay. Yeah, it's a, it's a great it's a great birthday, I have to admit. So have you had any personal experiences or something strange that you couldn't explain happened to you? I am very cautious about how I answer the question because I've definitely had things happen to me that I consider strange or, or weird I'm also a research writer, and you know, for me to say that it's definitely supernatural or paranormal, I can't really go that far. So I lived in an apartment, and throughout the year or so that I lived there, there was just a, an unusual amount of those weird things that happened. For instance, I was standing in the kitchen, and the television turned on by itself. I had doors closed by themselves at night. There were several interior doors that I always had open. One morning, I woke up, and they were all closed. There were things like that that happened that, you know, of course, there's a chance because this apartment was an apartment in an old house with several other apartments that infrared beam could be reflected across the windows, across glass into the television, and it could turn the, the channel, you know, turn the television on. So I've always had explanations for those things. And that's kind of my cutoff. If I can find a natural explanation for it, I usually roll it out. And for all of those things, I came to the conclusion that I, I couldn't fully say that these things were supernatural or paranormal. I do have an addendum to that story is that probably about five years, six years later, I found out my friend was staying at the same apartment. And I was just so happened I was on his Facebook page and he was writing a post about, well, the lady was here to visit me yesterday. And there was the same type of paranormal things or weird things that I experienced. He was experiencing in the same apartment. 
So sometimes I think these natural explanations that I struggle to come up with to explain these things start to sound almost as hard to believe as something as simple as a ghost. You know, it's almost like uh, I'm trying to explain it away. Those are some of the things that have happened. And trust me, as a writer about this, when I'm out and about, when I'm lecturing about this, when I'm at book signings, people come up to me and, you know, just between you and me, ghosts kind of freak me out. It's not something I want to experience on a, on a continual basis. Yeah. Uh, but these people come up to me and they tell me stories that, you know, are so convincing, uh, very hard to explain as far as natural means and also, some of these people have said that th- these encounters have changed their lives, that they see the world completely different. And so I continue to keep an open mind. I, I think it's a great way to write a book. I would be devastated either way to find out the truth about this because I, I feel like that would be the end. It's interesting, my process as I write these, because I try to, as a I approach it as a journalist, and I want to write about what these people experienced. I want to write about the ghost story. I I want to make it kind of creepy and fun, but I also try to add the skeptical side of things, too. And literally, as I'm writing these things, I can feel myself going from a believer to a skeptic, back to a believer, back to a skeptic. That's usually how I approach it. Well, you are a skeptic on the same level as myself. No matter how many weird things I've had happen, mm-hmm. I always do that where, okay, well, one time we had a lamp turn on while we were on a ghost tour. And wow. at the time I was like, wow, that was really amazing. It didn't freak me out or anything. But then as you start thinking about it later, I'm like, you know, God, I wish I would have looked to make sure that they didn't have like some kind of a timer set up right. on the outlet and that it was set to click on like that and that it wasn't staged or yeah, I do the same thing. I try to explain it in every other way, even though there's a little piece of me that hopes it was something supernatural. But the fact that you had a friend who was in that same apartment, it does start to make you go, well, it's a little harder to explain away when somebody else has the same stuff going on. Right. The even stranger thing was, for whatever reason, while I was in this apartment and I started to speculate, I was actually writing probably my first story about uh, my first book, which was a self-published book about Penn State ghost stories. I was experiencing some of these things. It, it just really kind of... Uh, blew me away that I felt like this was a female spirit. And don't ask me why, but I I felt that way. And the fact is that my friend actually said that he felt like it was a female spirit. And we never communicated this. I never shared this really with anyone besides maybe my wife. So it was pretty bizarre. But as you say, I always take that, that skeptical route. Well, what made you decide to go from, it's it's one thing to write about a bunch of universities, because it does seem like nearly every university out there has some kind of ghost story to go with it, but what made you decide to switch over to talking about music? I guess, first of all, I, I've always been a big fan of music, both rock and roll and, and classic country. I spent several years as a radio DJ on both rock and roll and country stations, so I've always had that love of music. And after I finished the book of on haunted universities, uh, my acquisitions editor was sort of, well, what do you got now? You know, sort of thing. I remembered some ghost stories about, I think, John Lennon and Hank Williams and Elvis. I just said, well, I'm, I'm going to do a book on haunted rock and roll. And I was a big fan of a book called Take a Walk on the Dark Side by Gary Patterson. Okay. And his book was sort of more of the occult kind of curse backgrounds. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, I'll just try to take it as a, a paranormal and ghost stories. And what I found was, as I started to look into it deeper and deeper, I found ghost stories about 
rock and roll stars literally all over the place, as well as some of the stories about the curses and paranormal. And as I'm writing these, I'm starting to think about why do we tell these stories? Why does a story about Jim Morrison's ghost last, you know, 40 years, 50 years? I came to the conclusion that there was something very special about rock and roll. There was some type of affinity between rock and roll music and the supernatural. So then after I was done with that, I had a few stories uh, that I kind of left out because they weren't about rock and roll, specifically Hank Williams and Patsy Cline. Mm -hmm. And I decided, well, I'll look in to see if I can find some stories about haunted country music. And I found a lot there. And as I was writing that book, I start to realize now that there is actually something special about music in general, maybe even more general. Maybe there's something special about art and creation and the supernatural. There seems to be a connection. And I think music, in my opinion, is almost a spiritual technology. It's a it's a tool for transcendence because there just is too many stories Again, I, I have to, I always say, you know, I find myself writing about ghost stories of musicians, uh, ghost stories of rock and roll. I'm not planning a book on ghost stories of, of famous accountants or anything like that. <laughs> so there there really is something profound about music itself and its effect on artists and its effect on fans. I think that's true because whenever we hear music, you know, it takes us back to memories that we have or when we look at theaters, there are so many theaters that are haunted Absolutely. and they've been concert venues or people have been performing on the stage. And I think it's because there's a lot of emotion that's tied into it. A lot of singers, when they're writing a song, they're writing about something that's personal in their life. And so they're putting that kind of energy into it. Then we hear it and we adapt that to something that may be going on in our life. And there just seemed to be a lot of spiritual energy around music. So I think you're right about that. I totally agree. We're mostly going to focus on Patsy Cline, but you've got a lot of other country singers that are in your book. Who else do you cover? There's Elvis, and I talk a lot about Loretta Lynn, not because Loretta Lynn is, is still with us, thankfully, but Loretta Lynn is probably one of the most supernaturally in tune country musicians, and she's had a lot of experiences. So I talk a lot about her experiences. Johnny Cash plays a big role in the book as well. There are stories. Uh, Johnny Cash, too, was very spiritually inclined. And so I have stories about his experiences with ghosts and with the supernatural, as well as some stories about that after his death, he has haunted a few, few different places, including his vacation home in Jamaica called Cinnamon Hill. And then I do a lot of bars and radio stations and honky tonks, as many as I can find. That's great. It sounds like a fascinating book. Where can people get your books? The best place to get it is Barnes & Nobles or Amazon. If you have a local bookstore and they don't have it, just, just go down and ask them to get it in. It's uh, through Llewellyn Publishing, so they're usually pretty good about getting them out there. And now, This Moment in Oddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Sasha Wolf. There was an abandoned home in Santa Cruz, California known as the Court of Mysteries. It was built by Kenneth Kitchen and his brother Raymond. Kenneth was a bricklayer and Raymond was a mason and they built many homes together in the area. Kenneth was inspired by mysticism and occult spiritualism and he decided that he wanted to build himself a home on a goat farm he owned. He wanted to model it after a Hindu temple. He hauled all the bricks himself in his car. He built the home at night, which was peculiar. 
When it was finished, it had two towers with an archway in the front that was called the Gate of Prophecy. The gate arch has four square tapered minarets that had windows bearing opaque, onyx-grained glass that were picturesque when lit. What was really strange was the mysterious triangular relief atop the arch. It resembled an all-seeing eye and reportedly is a celestial chart that pretends a celestial alignment between the plaque and temple's chimney, signaling an apocalypse before the Age of Peace. Everything was covered in abalone mosaics. The well house was made like a crypt and had four minarets. These odd accoutrements have odd craftsmen with the curved brickwork and bulbous granite domes. There was also a peculiar device in the front yard that was called a submarine stopping machine. Apparently it worked and caused issues for the U.S. Navy during World War II. Kenneth moved out and just disappeared in 1957. For years, it was a place for teenagers to hang out and vandalize. Today, it is privately owned and under restoration to its former temple inspiration. And that certainly is odd. Pull the covers up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. (laughs) And now, this month in history. In this month of February in 1959, American rock stars Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. the Big Bopper Richardson were killed in a plane crash. That day came to be known as the day the music died. Buddy Holly and his band The Crickets were headlining the winter dance party tour that included Valens and the Big Bopper. They had been traveling from city to city by bus, but they started having mechanical issues with the bus. Holly decided to charter a plane to fly his band to the next stop in Moorhead, Minnesota. There were not enough seats for everybody. The Big Bopper pleaded with Waylon Jennings, who was a member of Holly's band at that time, to give up his seat because the Big Bopper had the flu and was not feeling well. The last seat went to Richie Valens when he won a coin toss. The group boarded the Beechcraft Bonanza and took off from the airport in Mason City. A few minutes later, it crashed in Iowa. Investigators blamed the crash on pilot error and the snow and ice that had gathered on the wings. The Big Bopper was only 28 and had his hit, Chantelle Lace, in the top 10. Holly was 22 and was becoming a major star with hits like Peggy Sue, Oh Boy, Maybe Baby, and Early in the Morning. Valens was a mere 17 when he died in the crash and was just emerging onto the scene with his hits, Come On, Let's Go, Donna, and La Bamba. Patsy Klein grew up to be one of country music's biggest stars, and although she died young at the age of 30, her influence has continued to our present day. She had a cowgirl image, but she was one of the first country stars to cross over to the pop charts. She also paved the way for women to be headliners at shows, and she became the first female solo performer inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. She survived two horrible car accidents, but the third crash she would be involved in aboard a plane would finally take her life. Her spirit reputedly has continued on in the afterlife. From the field where she died to some of the music venues she performed at, the spirit of Klein has been making appearances. Virginia Patterson Hensley was born in Winchester, Virginia on September 8, 1932 to Samuel and Hilda Hensley. 
Samuel was 41 when he married 16-year-old Hilda. A little bit of an age difference there? Uh, just slightly. And in today's age, he would have gone to jail. But hey. Uh, yes. But uh, that, that was popular back then because Elvis married Priscilla when she wasn't of age either. Yes, indeed. And uh, I just, when you're 41 marrying a 16-year-old, I have to wonder what you have in common. But he did eventually abandon the family in 1947. And uh, this was when Ginny, and that is what the family called Patsy, was only 15. So her dad left the home when she was just 15. She was the eldest. Ginny started playing the piano when she was only eight, and she was largely self-taught. And she did play the piano by ear. She could not read music. A few years later, she would discover her voice and really enjoyed singing. Rheumatic fever brought a throat infection when she was 13, and she claimed that after she recovered, she had a booming voice like Kate Smith. At 16, she dropped out of school so she could work to help support the family. She had a younger brother and sister. Ginny worked at a poultry plant and as a soda jerk. This jockey, Jimmy McCoy, let Ginny sing on his local radio show at WINC, and then she also started singing at local clubs. So that's where she was starting to get her toes in the water of her singing career. Bill Pierre was a band leader, and he became Ginny's manager. She started performing with his group, and he suggested that she change her name. He thought Patsy suited her better, and he got this from her middle name, Patterson. She began performing as Patsy Hensley in 1952. She met contractor Gerald Klein around this time, and by 1953, the couple was married. And Patsy Klein would be the name that would stick for this legend. In 1954, Bill Pierce shopped Klein to Four Star Records and got her a recording contract. A part of the contract restricted Klein to performing only songs written by Four Star Records songwriters. Klein accepted the contract because she thought it was her only opportunity, but she regretted that decision later as she was not thrilled with the material provided to her for performing. She was free to perform what she wanted at the Grand Old Opry, and that helped her to feel a little less stifled. These early songs did not receive much attention. Klein was afraid to go beyond the twang of country, but Owen Bradley, who was a producer at Decca Records, approached Klein and said her vocal range suited pop perfectly, and she should consider singing torch songs. Klein declined to go down that route at the time. While her music career was hitting a wall, her marriage to Gerald was doing the same. The problem here, Denise, is Gerald apparently didn't realize Patsy's dreams. And he wanted himself a little housewife to stick around the house, have some kids, take care of the house. And Patsy Cline wants to become a singer and a star. Those two things don't necessarily go hand in hand. No, it's kind of hard to be home doing dishes when you're trying to become a legend. Especially if you're thinking that she's working at nightclubs at night. We all know how that life probably goes. You're sleeping late into the day and then you're working mostly at night. You're not at home a lot. So you can imagine there were a lot of fights going on here. And uh, she just said, well, then you're going to have to hit the road. So they ended up getting a divorce on July 4th, 1957. Her career then began its upward climb as more people heard her iconic vocal range. She remarried to Charles Dick in September of 1957, a few short months after her divorce. Klein would call him the love of her life. Now, there's probably some people going a few short months after her divorce. Well, that's a pretty quick turnaround. Uh, divorce becomes official in July, and by September, she's already married to some other guy. Well, what happened is they met at an armory dance, and this was a place where Klein was performing. She was still married to Gerald at that time when she met Charles, and he was one of those ladies' men. He was a good time Charlie, as they like to say. 
funny how his name is Charles. <laughs> yep. And he lived up to that reputation. And she was very enamored with him. And he, of course, was very enamored with her. And uh, so an affair happened there. But what was interesting is she was already having an affair with her manager, Bill Peer. That was kind of an on-again, off-again thing. I guess they were pretty combative with each other, too. So she's already having one affair. She meets Charlie, starts having an affair with him. And so then she ends up marrying him eventually. And they would stay married until her death. Author Godfrey hosted a program on CBS TV called Author Godfrey's Talent Scouts. Klein auditioned to be on the show, and she appeared in 1957. She wanted to sing A Poor Man's Roses or A Rich Man's Gold, but the producers wanted her to sing a song written by Don Hecht and Alan Block. It was called Walkin' After Midnight. The producers also insisted that she wear a cocktail dress rather than one for cowgirl get-ups. She was an absolute hit. Godfrey used to have this meter that measured applause, and it went nuts while she sang. The song went on to rise up at the country and pop charts, and Klein was a star. In 1958, Patsy gave birth to a daughter named Julie. Reputedly, Charles started beating on Patsy, and they had a tumultuous relationship. Patsy gave birth to a son in 1961. So those would be the two children that she would have. What happened is, after people saw Patsy on TV... They were calling all the disc jockeys in their towns and going, who is this girl and how do I get that song? So they decided we better put this down on vinyl and get this out to people. Randy Hughes was a session guitarist and he became Patsy's new manager at this time. Decca Records offered her a contract and as you will recall, one of its producers wanted Patsy to use her voice for pop torch songs. This was really the opportunity Patsy had been looking for freedom to record what she wanted because as a part of this contract they weren't going to tell her well you can only sing songs that our writers write can you imagine how stifling that would be denise yeah but it still happens today so you got to be very very careful with what you sign when you're so excited to become something exactly make sure you're not signing your rights away and that you're not locking yourself into something that's going to put a kibosh on your creativity because, again, if I was to tell you any of those songs that she sang for Four Star Records, you guys would be like, I don't know any of those. Now that she's going to be with Decca Records, you're going to know all of the songs that she sang. She joined the cast of the Grand Old Opry. So you, you recall she was performing there every so often. Well, now she's a regular member of the cast. And that was in Nashville, Tennessee. She started releasing her biggest hits with I Fall to Pieces, hitting number one on the country charts in 1961. That song was a pop crossover as well and hit 12 on the pop chart. And it's actually my second favorite song of hers. It was written by Hank Cochran and Harlan Howard. Willie Nelson wrote Crazy and it was an instant hit for Klein. She released it in 1961 as well and it became her signature song. Yes, it did. Crazy. I love that song. It's not only my favorite song that she sang, but it's one of my favorite songs of all time. That same year, Klein survived a traumatic car crash in which she was thrown through the windshield of the car in which she was riding. Patsy had a huge gash in her forehead that would leave her with a permanent scar. She also had a dislocated hip and had to spend a month in the hospital. She rededicated her life to Christ. In 1962, things got even bigger for Klein. She recorded She's Got You and it hit number one also on the country charts. George Jones, Johnny Cash, June Carter, and Loretta Lynn all performed with Patsy. Klein mentored Loretta Lynn. She not only helped female artists out, but she also loved hanging out with the boys and she could hold her own. Singer George Riddle said of her, 
It wasn't unusual for her to sit down and have a beer and tell a joke, and she'd never be offended at the guy's jokes either, because most of the time, she'd tell a joke dirtier than you. Patsy was full of life. She also told concert promoters, no dough, no show, and made them pay her before she performed. A lot of the time what would happen out there on the performance circuit is you would go to these shows that these promoters were putting on and they'd put you out there on the poster and say, oh, you're going to make this amount of money. They'd fill up the stands and get you to perform and then they would book it out of there and the performers would be left with no money. So she said, oh, no, you're not taking me for a ride. So she would tell them, you give me the money right now or I am not going to perform. So she was probably one of the first ones to stand up to that as well and say, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to treat us that way. Klein seemed to know that her death was imminent. And you're going to hear and you're going to hear in our interview with Matt that she seemed to have premonitions about that. After recording her fourth and what would be her final album, Patsy held up her first album and then gestured at the recording booth and said, well, here it is, the first and the last. So it was as if she knew that this is the last record I'm ever going to put out. And it certainly wasn't because her career was going down. A month later, March 3rd, 1963, she was performing at a benefit at the Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hall in Kansas City. The benefit, ironically, was to raise money for the family of a disc jockey named Cactus Jack Call, who had just died in an automobile crash. Patsy gave three performances, even though she was ill with the flu. Her final song was, I'll Sail My Ship Alone. Klein wanted to fly out the next day, but the thick fog in the area grounded all planes. Some friends asked Klein to ride home with them in their car, but she refused. She finally was able to fly out on March 5th, and she did so on a Piper PA-24 Comanche plane, aircraft registration number N-7000P. The plane took off at 6.07 p.m. Winds were high, and the pilot was not trained in instrument flying. The airfield manager suggested that the plane not leave. The pilot tried to use visual flight rules, VFR, but that didn't work because of the driving rain. The plane went down, and Klein's stopped watch was found with the time of 6.20 p.m., so many believe that is when the plane crashed. It had been in the air less than 15 minutes. It went down in a forest, and everyone on board was killed instantly. A man named Roger Miller searched for the wreckage in the morning. He said, as fast as I could, I ran through the woods screaming their names, through the brush and the trees. I came up over this little rise. Oh, my God, there they were. It was ghastly. The plane had crashed nose down. Artifacts from the crash that are now at the Country Music Hall of Fame included Klein's studded belt, Klein's wristwatch, Confederate flag cigarette lighter, and three pairs of gold lame slippers. Klein is buried at Shenandoah Memorial Park in her hometown of Winchester, Virginia. Her grave is marked with a bronze plaque which reads, Virginia H. Patsy Klein, Death Cannot Kill What Never Dies, Love. Dottie West and Loretta Lynn erected a bell tower at the cemetery in her memory. It plays hymns daily at 6 p.m., the hour of her death. Another memorial marks the exact place off Fire Tower Road in Fatty Bottom, Tennessee, where the plane crashed in the still remote forest. That was not the end for Patsy, though. Her legend continues, but so does her spirit in the afterlife. And now Matt Swain is going to share with us a little bit more about Patsy Klein and some of the places where her ghost is reputedly seen. Well, I am a huge fan of Patsy Klein, and she's one of those figures that has had an immense influence in music, even though she basically had a very short life. She died at 30. Can you tell us a little bit about her beginnings? 
it was a pleasure to write about Patsy Cline. Even before I wrote this book, I just thought that she had one of the most distinctive voices not just in country music, but I would put her up there with Billie Holiday as one of the most distinct voices in music history, at least American music history. Patsy Cline was born in Winchester, Virginia. You know, by the time she died, she was sort of the queen of country music. What I appreciate about Patsy Cline was that she was a very generous spirit. There are so many stories that I came across as I was researching this about how she mentored Loretta Lynn. Loretta Lynn probably wouldn't be the great star she was without Patsy Cline's influence. Uh, the other thing that I found out about Patsy, and it really comes through if you listen to her voice, she has a very bold, strong voice, but, there, but it's also very vulnerable. And that's the sense I got that you have this incredible spirit who was in country music at the time which was very much a good old boys club. And Patsy Cline was able to go to the bars. She was able to go to the honky tonks and she was able to hang with the best of them. What I found was that that spirit uh, that, that Patsy had in life really translated to some of the ghost stories that I found about her after she passed. Yeah, like you said, she just had this amazing voice. I know when she started out, she had to do kind of a talent show thing and it took a while mm -hmm. to, for her to get discovered but when you think about it, like you said she has one of those iconic voices where it's like how did she not just open her mouth for the first time and everybody just go oh my god yeah and the other thing that i found out about her is is her voice was so good so classically good that she could have picked a couple different genres she had a voice that could have gone to broadway she had a voice that could have been in a big band but you know probably because this was the music that she grew up with, and this was the music of her area. And I think also she did have a, a rough time. I think her father left very early in her life, and her mom struggled as a single mother back then to raise her. But I, I think there was an affinity where you get that beautiful marriage of voice, music, and message all together. And that's what I found about her music and about researching a little bit about her for this book. Well, the thing that's interesting about her death is... Two years before she died, she almost died in a car accident. They had this head-on collision, and she actually got thrown through the windshield. So it's a miracle mm -hmm. that she survived it. And so it almost makes you wonder, did she cheat death then, and it came back to get her two years later? She actually, and again, when I talk a little bit about the spiritual affinity that these artists have, there were cases of, according to some of the sources that I found, she had a kind of a precognitive ability. And at one point, I think she told Loretta Lynn, she said, I've had two bad accidents because apparently before the one that you were talking about, she was involved in another automobile accident. And she said, I've had two. The next one, if I survive that, it's going to be the last one. But she said, I don't. She basically said the next one was going to take her. And she became somewhat fatalistic at that period of her career. So she had kind of a, a sixth sense about this. Interesting. I did not know that. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Kind of reminds me of Abraham Lincoln. He did the same thing a lot, too. Yeah, I thought the same thing when I was reading those stories as well. So she dies in a plane crash. And we hear about people, their spirits, if they stick around, tend to haunt the area where they died. Are there reports mm -hmm. of her spirit being where her plane crashed? There are reports. And the stories that I heard about the plane crash site where she died, and I think it was in an area in western Tennessee where her plane crashed. 
they reminded me of when I was writing about Buddy Holly for the Haunted Rock and Roll book. And usually uh, right around the anniversary of Buddy Holly's death, which was February 3rd, uh, you'll hear stories of people saying that uh, they've heard screams and the kind of the crumple of metal and sounds crashing. Uh, and, and there are other stories about seeing uh, floating orbs in the fields in Iowa where he crashed. Similarly, Patsy Cline, at her crash site, I got several reports of people hearing strange noises and hearing screams and the sounds of crashing at that area. As a journalist, it makes me wonder whether there's not some type of connection between, A, the tragedy of the event, and somehow that creates, uh, you know, like a residual energy, Mm -hmm. which is what some of the paranormal researchers that I talked to said. The other thing is maybe this is an element of ghost lore. When there are events like this, these stories crop up somewhat spontaneously, and that's sort of like a grassroots thing. I love that you differentiate between ghost lore and then ghost stories that people are telling you that are experiences that they've had, because there really is a difference there. And we found as we've looked into the haunted history of places, it's hard to differentiate between the two. Right. It's very difficult. And I try to make a point about that, especially in the book. What I find now after I've written about three of them is maybe they're interconnected. Mm -hmm. Maybe there are ways in which they're not mutually exclusive as I try to portray them, but actually that they're they're connected. To me, it seems that way. It's kind of like with urban legends. You know that there was probably something that really happened that is similar mm-hmm. to the story we're hearing, but maybe not exactly that, and it just changed as it's gone through time. Right. And there's another element to it, too, that I don't think many people bring up, but I, I think it's a valid theory, is I think ghost lore is so prevalent because it becomes hard for people to put their names to ghost stories. You just, most people find it hard to go out and say, I saw a ghost. When I try to do ghost accounts in the books, what I try to do is have a name, someone who published it with a a reporter or with another writer or with me, because it's really an act of, uh, for me, it's that's an act of confidence when you go to someone and say, I saw a ghost and here's what I saw and this is when I saw it and you give details. A lot of cases, the more accounts you have, the more legitimate it is as a journalist. Uh, but what I found about ghost lore is if you experience something at, let's say, Patsy Klein's crash site, you're probably more willing to say, oh, yeah, that place is haunted. I heard stories of this happening and that happening and not putting your name to it. So there, there, there's a, you know, there's another kind of facet to it. I know when we were in Nashville, we went on a ghost tour there. And one of the locations that we stopped outside of was the Ryman Theater. And I couldn't remember if they had told us any stories about Patsy Cline. But I know that you mentioned that this is one of the locations that she seems to be popping up. Yeah, there are several people who have said that they have seen the ghost of Patsy Cline. Usually in the hall, she appears uh, in a, as a, like a sort of a misty figure at the end of the hall. But most of these people are fans of Patsy Cline and know her to see her. So she is she's one of the ghosts that haunts Ryman. It's probably one of the most haunted places as far as sheer numbers of accounts than any other place that I've that I uh, researched in country music history. 
Well, it's funny because whenever I hear stories about the Ryman, I always think about how people talk about all the rock and roll artists that have died and have gone to heaven, that it must have a great band up there. Right. And I think that's what's going on at the Ryman because it seems like everybody haunts that place. There are a lot of stories there. Uh, even the founder, who, uh, Thomas Ryman, who was, uh, from what I've researched, he was kind of a bad egg involved in gambling and prostitution who was converted by a preacher and built this place. You know, it is the mother church of country music. Mm-hmm. He built this, though, as as a church and was very, very much against secular music. And there are several stories about people thinking that the captain is is angry that secular music is being played there. There was one story that I write about where there was a particularly saucy act playing and all of a sudden there was this sound of almost like explosions and rattling and it it sounded like the whole theater was going to collapse. Everyone speculated that that was Captain Ryman who's a little upset that this act was performing and apparently it was it caused such a fuss that the act stopped and was taken off stage. So it worked. Wow. And that's not something you could just kind of make up. No. <laughs> Can't say, oh, there was a little earthquake in uh, right. Nashville just in that spot. <laughs> <laughs> what other places has uh, Patsy Cline's spirit been reported at? One of my favorite stories, and this is really a, a ghost account, she had bought very late in her, her career, very late in her life, unfortunately. She bought her dream house right outside of Nashville. And I guess if we look at standards today of country, of the homes and mansions of country musicians, it was probably pretty small. It was about a 4,000 square foot home, but it was her dream house. And, and I think she died, I believe it was like five or six months later. Mm. And after that, the house had uh, passed through a few different hands, and at least two of the people came uh, forward and said that they really believe that Patsy still haunts the place. One was uh, a singer named Wilma Burgess, and she said, and she was, uh, you know, she was a singer, so she must have had some respect for Patsy, but she believed that uh, she could sense the presence of Patsy Klein uh, in in the still in the home, and then later a. A big Patsy Cline fan bought the house and wanted to restore it. And uh, during those restoration efforts, initially he was very skeptical and didn't believe it. But he would hear things like he thought were the sounds of high heels walking across the floor above. Uh, when he was in the second floor or in the first floor, he could hear it in the upstairs. Initially, he blamed his dogs. He had some chihuahuas with the nails scraping across the floorboards. But uh, later on, he heard the same noise and saw that his dogs were right there with him. A few months later, he had his sisters come down and help with the restoration effort. And they claimed, at least on one occasion, that the gas fireplace turned on by itself while they were working. And they had some other experiences. And finally, by the end of the restoration efforts, uh, he was pretty convinced that there was a... uh, there was a ghost in that house. And, and then there are some other places where she's been, at least ghost stories have occurred. One is the Municipal Stadium, uh, which is was home center for the Louisiana Hayride. It's in Shreveport, Louisiana. Louisiana Hayride probably put that right up there with the Grand Ole Opry is great. Uh, country radio shows. It launched the careers of a couple famous artists, including Elvis, Johnny Cash. So that era, the Municipal Stadium, is also supposed to be haunted by Patsy Cline. And one of the things there, I think there's some EVPs that people said were, were Patsy. Uh, another place that Patsy haunts is Memorial Hall in Kansas City. That was her last show. She did a benefit 
concert for a DJ who died, uh, ironically enough, in a, in a car crash just a few weeks before. And people say that they see the ghost of Patsy Cline. The, the stories are very similar to the Patsy Cline stories in Ryman Auditorium in that they see someone in the crowd who looks exactly like Patsy Cline. And then as they go up to, to try to communicate with her, she disappears or she goes into the crowd. Some staff members there also claim to have uh, seen the ghost of Patsy Cline, which seem to discount the skeptics who say, well, it's just a lookalike or just someone who looks a, a lot like Patsy Cline, because these staff members say that they have seen this ghost after hours. So those are uh, a few of the, the big haunted hotspots for Patsy Cline. Yeah, and you wouldn't have somebody who is doing the lookalike thing, sneaking in after hours just to to cause, you know, some kind of a spooky event to happen here. Exactly. I did want to mention that uh, I, I this didn't get in the book because usually what happens is two minutes after you've put the final manuscript in the envelope and sent it off to the publisher, you find 10 more stories. <laughs> but I found an interesting story about the Ryman. Well, the Ryman was the home for the Grand Ole Opry, the radio show. And then it moved to Opryland, not because they were trying to be mean or anything, but because the, the venue was much better and the sounds much better. And the crowds that were coming into the Ryman, just, they, they just needed a bigger spot. Sure. But what they, what they did was they took some boards from the stage out to Opryland. And now there are ghost stories out there, too, this sort of the same ones about Patsy Cline, about this, some similar ones about Hank Williams. Uh, Roy Acuff haunts that area, too. And then there's this kind of hint that might have been a good one for the haunted rock and roll, because I did not know that there were so many people who played the Ryman and played the Grand Ole Opry who who uh, died mysteriously. And you could put Hank Williams and Ryman and uh, Patsy Cline in that that category. But I think like 30 people have died who were somehow connected to the Grand Ole Opry and the Ryman. So there is this rumor that the stage boards themselves have a curse. Interesting. I wonder why there would be a curse specifically on those boards. I don't know. I, the only guess I had when I read that was that was that Captain Thomas Ryman must uh -huh. be Part of going after them. Yeah. Wow, that's kind of chilling if you think that yeah. it's one thing to cause a ruckus and get people off the stage because you don't like their music. But then, I don't know, boy, just putting all of this together, thinking about Patsy Cline escaping death a couple of times and a lot of these guys, it was more than just once that they, and yeah, they traveled a lot back then and it wasn't as, flying was a lot different back then. Now a plane goes down and it makes big news. Back then it happened a little bit more often and stuff and car crashes and things, but it does make right. you really wonder if there was something kind of chasing after them. And then, of course, when you get into talking about selling your soul to the devil, did some of mm -hmm. them have their talent from a different place? Right. It, and the other thing to remember is that when Patsy died in the plane crash, uh, there were co-performers with her. Co uh, Cowboy Copas and uh, Hasha Hawkins, I believe, also died in that crash, too. So, you know, when you look at... Uh, ghost stories, what I find is the connection between big spirits, people who, who just have big personalities with tragedy. And when you get that combination, that's usually what inspires most of the ghost lore and the ghost stories. So that site has, you know, if you look at those criteria, that site has a lot going for it. 
Absolutely. Do you have a favorite Patsy Cline song? Oh, geez. I don't know. I always like uh, Crazy, and I think that's mm-hmm. because uh, of the Willie Nelson influence. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I would say that's my favorite. But there isn't really one that I don't like. I, I don't think I've ever heard any of her songs. And it just thought, boy, that just didn't, didn't do anything for me. Yeah, I think it's the iconic voice that goes with it. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, she could probably sing the Yellow Pages and you'd be like, oh, my God, that's amazing. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> Is there something that you're working on next? Uh, yes, I am actually, and I'm, I'm hoping I did a good job with this, and you might invite me back, because I want to do a book on some of the ghost stories and some of the weird stories about World War II. Oh, uh, wow. So I, I just pitched it to my publisher, and they're into it. Well, I do encourage you guys to check out Matt's books, especially this America's Haunted Universities. I uh, Just looking at the table of contents, there are a ton of universities in here that he has covered. I want to make sure that you guys know to spell his last name, it's S-W-A-Y-N-E. So that's how you would look that up. Are you on Twitter or Facebook at all? I am on Twitter at uh, Matt Swain Books. And uh, I'm on Facebook, I think, also as Matt Swain Books. I also have a Facebook, Matt Swain. You can always get a hold of me there. I just realized how egotistical I sound now because I'm Matt Swain Books, Matt Swain this. I do have mattswain.com, too, if you want to check out the books there. That's just (laughs) – I've just creeped myself out. This is probably the creepiest thing I've done. I've talked about the whole whole time. But, you know, it's the easiest place to find authors. And so you got to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I know. That's what they tell me. Well, I want to thank you so much, Matt, for joining us and sharing all of these wonderful haunted stories and and your skepticism as well and some of your theories. I love to talk to people about this stuff and just see where do you think this is coming from? Why is Uh this happening? It's interesting to hear what other people think about that. It was very nice. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. All right. Well, you have a great rest of your weekend and I look forward to talking to you in the future. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Bye bye. Is Patsy Klein's ghost still visiting some of her favorite places? That is for you to decide. Wow, just a fascinating woman. Really enjoyed doing this episode. And now I'm going to go listen to some Patsy Klein music because it's got me in the mood. I know. It's so sad when, when people leave us so young. And I have loved her music ever since I was a kid, just even before I got into country music, because I came to country music kind of later in life. I mean, I listened to Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers when I was growing up, but they crossed over into the pop charts a lot. So I would listen to some of their stuff. But Patsy Cline was, wow, that was my first real taste of country. And I really enjoyed it. It wasn't until I was pretty much in my 20s that I got into more of the newer country kind of stuff. And I actually prefer the older to the newer. Yeah, I didn't even start listening to country. I absolutely hated country music. I was a rock and roll girl all the way. And then I started going out two-stepping because I love to dance and started listening to country. And now it's one of my one of my favorite types of music. On our next episode, we have a location that was suggested to us by two of our listeners, Matthew Herons and Kristen Swintek. We're going to Chicago and checking out the Congress Plaza Hotel. Pretty haunted place, reputedly. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we just wanted to send a shout out to Liz on Twitter and tell you that we are glad that we were able to make your week better. Got this message over on Facebook from Patrick. Hi, Diane. I've been listening to History Ghost Bump for going on a year and a half now, so I apologize for just now reaching out to you and joining the Spectacular crew, although there's a reason I am now versus earlier before. 
First, I just want to say thanks to you and Denise for all of the work you put into each episode. I know it's a labor of love, but it's still very much labor. So I just hope you know we don't take it for granted. Great job and keep up the tremendous work. As I mentioned above, I'm reaching out now for a specific reason, because for as long as I've been into the paranormal, I really have never had anything happen personally until two nights ago. In December, my mother was diagnosed with bilateral breast cancer. So as you can imagine, for the past few months, it's been hell, filled with waiting and torturous uncertainty, and the medical center even botched the scheduling of her surgery. Fortunately, she underwent surgery yesterday, but on Monday night, when she was beyond scared and completely overwhelmed, and I know exactly how that feels before you're about to have surgery, she called me into the living room with a look of total shock. As she explained to me, she was on the phone with her sister, who's my aunt, when out of the blue, she got an incoming call from her father, who's my grandfather, and he passed away in September. She was in complete disbelief, and truthfully, I still don't know what to make of it. We called the number back and received an all-circuits-are-busy message. Even if the number does belong to someone else, what are the odds of receiving the call that night, just prior to such an important event? Anyway, I just wanted to share that with you. I'm still not sure if that counts as a bona fide paranormal experience, but it's just about as close as I think I may ever get to being in touch with the other side. I like to believe that it was, in fact, my grandfather reaching out somehow, and not some pesky telemarketing company that got his reissued number. So my response back to him, Denise, was, first of all, we do know numbers do get reissued after people cancel their phones or whatever. But what are the chances that your canceled number would call your family member? Yeah, I mean, the odds, I don't even know what the odds would be. You could probably win the lottery with less odds. And then on top of that, it happens to be, as I said, I know what it feels like. And I know a lot of our listeners are probably had to go through surgery and stuff. And the night before you're going to go have that done, it is very nerve wracking. You're scared, especially if it's the first time you've ever had surgery. And if there's ever a moment that you need somebody to comfort you and call you, particularly a parent, that would be it. So what are the chances that this number would call you that's from your father? As I've said many times, I don't believe in coincidences. I don't think Denise, do you? I think there's coincidences, but I think that's just when God chooses to remain anonymous. You know what Jessica Chobot calls those? God coincidences. Yeah, see, me and Jessica <laughs> are a lot alike, minus a couple <laughs> F words. So whatever this happened to be, I don't think it was some telemarketer who happened to have the number that called at just that moment and had it pop up. So I think you probably had yourself some kind of a paranormal experience there, Patrick. Thank you for sharing that with us. And of course, your mother is in our thoughts and prayers as she comes back from that uh, battling breast cancer. We've had a lot of friends that have been through that. So we know exactly what route that is. Yes. We have a couple of iTunes reviews to share with everybody. We have this review from Gunter Train off the beaten path stories, five stars. I just discovered this podcast and I am addicted. The chemistry between the hosts is awesome and how they work off each other's comments. I love the stories they choose. Some are known stories, but most are off the beaten path. Those are the ones I love. I would love to do a road trip following their podcast. I'll be sure to review past podcasts when near a town where one of the stories has taken place to see if I can fit it in on my travels. This makes my workday go by so much faster and much more entertaining. I love to take historical and ghost tours in places I visit, and this podcast is like taking a tour. Well done, ladies. Well, thank you so much, Gunter Train, for that. And then we got another review from Canada. This one is from Elaine LaVerdiere, and I hope I didn't butcher your last name. History Goes Bump Podcast, five stars. Listen to this for a Halloween lark. Still listening because it's fun. Loads of great info that pops out from extra bonus historical spooky stuff about places around the world. Could be quite handy for planning some added bonus to your travel destinations. 
It's a podcast about the paranormal that even if you're a general skeptic such as myself, you'll still find lots to enjoy. Amiable hosts who present as informed and engaging, but not pedantic. And she hails from Calgary. Awesome. Thank you, Elaine, for that. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Jen Manriquez. And thank you to Lindsay Smith for upping your donation. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.